it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. You're tuned in to the Investing for Beginners podcast. Finally, step-by-step premium investment guidance for beginners. Led by Andrew Sather and Dave Ahern to decode industry jargon, silence crippling confusion, and help you overcome emotions by looking at the numbers. Your path to financial freedom Starts now. All right, folks, welcome to Investing for Beginners podcast. This is episode 163. Tonight, we are going to answer a listener question. We got a great question from David recently, and Andrew and I are going to take apart his question. It's uh, quite extensive, and there's lots of great stuff in here, so we're going to go ahead and answer that for David on the air. So I'm going to go ahead and start off and say, hi, Andrew. Thank you for all the resources you put together. As a 25-year-old who had no foundational understanding of stocks, your podcast has been immensely helpful, hoping you could fill in some gaps I currently have. The first thing you'd like to talk about is dividends. So we'll do a little rapid fire here. So dividends, are they payout quarterly, yearly, or variable? Andrew? Yeah, it depends on the company. Most are quarterly. Perfect. Uh, what is the time period between when a company determines a dividend versus when it is paid? Uh, it depends. So what I like to do for a stock is I'll Google, let's say I want to look at Apple's dividend history. So I'll just put in the ticker AAPL dividend history. And I like to use the NASDAQ website because it will show you the dates that they've announced the dividend payout the date you have to hold the stock by to get the dividend payout, and then the date that you will receive the dividend in your brokerage account. And so, you know, that website has it. Some other websites do have it. So there's not like this golden time period between those different deadlines, I guess. And, you know, sometimes they could be a couple of days later, a couple of days early with with announcing and everything like that. But um, that's just the general thing with dividends. Correct me if I'm wrong, but every company is on their own time schedule, correct? Uh, I mean, I know this. I'll get like groups of dividends in in my email uh, any given day. So it seems like some might be on similar schedules. 
but yeah, um, it's pretty random for the most part. Okay, right. So Wells Fargo is going to pay their dividend irregardless of when J.P. Morgan or Bank of America are. It's not really dependent on each other. Yeah. Okay. Perfect. All right. Next question. How long must you hold a stock before you're entitled to a dividend? And is this determined by the time you hold the stock or the time between stock purchase and dividend announcement? Yep. Just cover that. It's called the X dividend date. And that's the date you got to hold the stock by to get the dividend. Perfect. All right. Moving on to the next section, we have diversification. So David says, I believe you've mentioned 10 to 20 companies is about the sweet spot from a diversification standpoint. Out of these 10 to 20, uh, do you try to place each company in its own unique sector? Do you place additional weight in sectors that are growing faster than others? Example, tech and health at the moment. So I look at a portfolio and its sector balances. And so, yeah, obviously you don't want to have 75% of your portfolio in one sector. At the same time, I don't necessarily need each individual position to be its own sector. So I could have two stocks that are maybe very similar sectors or overlapping sectors. I have a big theme right now in my model portfolio where I am trying to capitalize on a long-term secular trend. And so there's maybe three different stocks that all profit from that single trend moving forward. So they, they kind of tend to rise at the same time, but they're not all in the same sector. But if they were in the same sector, I wouldn't necessarily care too much. But again, it's, it's all about moderation. So you don't want too much overexposure to one sector. And you do play with, with the sector weightings. I think that's something that's very variable, obviously. But I'm not doing it intentionally in the sense that I, I I try not to put a strict limitation on I want to hit 30% this industry, 20% that industry. It kind of tends to play out that way sometimes. But a lot of times you're kind of taking what you're given and trying to take each investment on its own standpoint. So like as an example, right? I have some capital to allocate for my recommendation tomorrow night, right? So I'm looking at that money and I'm going to decide based on the positions I have in my portfolio already, you know? So do I want to make sure that one sector isn't more than like 50% allocated or one stock? And as long as that's not the case, well, then I'm going to put my money into what I think is the best opportunity. And so that might make a certain sector stronger weighting than others, and so as long as it's not a deal breaker, then I'm fine with it, regardless of how I feel about which sector is growing faster than the other or which sector I'm maybe more bullish on or not. Okay, good answer. And I would like to ask you a question along those lines. I think people will, would probably think about this as well. How do you feel about plugging in a company to fill a sector that maybe you don't represent. In other words, if you don't have anything in maybe real estate, do you spend time trying to find something to quote unquote fill that quota? Or do you just kind of go with what you feel is more a strength of yours and try to stay within circle of competence or areas related to that? It's a good question. I I think about a similar thing. So, you know, one thing that I 
worry about is losing out with big tech or losing out with cloud. So I think as an investor, it's something you're always going to have to deal with. The problem being, it's going to be pretty impossible to keep up with every little thing. And so you had, you just, if you really want to run your investment decisions based on opportunity cost, you're going to have a ton of regret and it's just a game you can never win. So I think, I think, uh, having a general exposure to most of the economy, I think that's a good thing. I don't think you're going to hit every single pocket of it. And I don't necessarily think that you should target stocks just to, to reach an allocation. But I'll also say that I think it's, it's good to keep some maybe sectors in your wish list and, and kind of keep it in that corner of your mind where you're saying, Hey, I know maybe this sector is a little more expensive on average over however many years I've looked at it. You know, this sector tends to be expensive, but maybe it's relatively cheaper due to some troubles in the industry. And so maybe because you have that in the back of your mind, you'll see when the right opportunity is to get some exposure to that industry without at the same time forcing yourself to get into that industry. So, you know, kind of maybe again, taking what the market's giving you and then being smart with your allocations, but not forcing anything. Perfect. Okay. Do you keep all the companies in roughly the same medium market cap or sprinkle in a couple larger slash smaller companies? Yeah. I mean, size isn't really um, part of the decision-making too, too much. It's, it's really more about the individual company, its valuation and the strength of its business. I would agree with that. All right. Moving on to the next section of David's question, uh, current approach. So over the past three-ish years, you've been making the podcast. Have there been any adjustments that you've made to your approach? So I think, Dave, I want to hear your opinion because if I'm counting correctly, that's also the past three-ish years that you have been on the podcast as well. (laughs) Uh, So (laughs) have there been any adjustments on your approach? Yes, there have been for sure. Uh, I have, as I've learned more and grown more and just experienced more in the world of investing and read more, just become more, I guess, well-rounded, I have broadened some of my theories and thoughts on how I value companies and kinds of things that I try to look for. And I'm trying to extend my circle of competence, uh, trying to step into areas that are maybe are a little more gray than I'm not used to and comfortable with, but attempting to learn more about them because that's the only way that I'm going to grow as a person and as an investor. Uh, my approach to debt has changed. Uh, I used to be very much all about debt to equity and high debt to equity was bad. And that's as far as I took it. Now I spend much more time looking at the amount of debt the company has, the ability of the company to pay that off and the schedule of when that debt is coming due, because that has a a big bearing on how a company's cash flow will be handled. I've also started spending much more time analyzing the cash flow of the company as well as the balance sheet, as opposed to the income statement, which 
most analysts spend a lot of time working on, I have not spent as much time on that recently. So I feel like I've shifted my focus on the financials and where I look in the financials. And I also feel like my ideas about valuation have changed and I'm trying to kind of broaden my horizons on that. And in that I don't get hung up on the actual final, this is the price where I try to look more at ranges of possibilities as opposed to this company should be worth $24 and 62 cents. Now I'm more worried about, is it going to be 20 bucks or is it going to be 30 bucks? And is that doable? And where do I see that happening? So I, I've worked more harder on developing a more extensive, I guess, checklist and all those things that I just talked about. I try to incorporate all those into the checklist. And as I encounter different ideas and things, I, I guess, weigh whether I want to add those to the checklist and include those in things that would make me want to consider buying the company or not. And I think I've try, also tried to be more open-minded about things that maybe at the beginning I would have been like, this is not Warren Buffett. I'm not doing it kind of thing. And I've tried to, I guess, open my mind on some of those things. So now that I've spoken my piece, Andrew, what is your, what is your idea? When it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to nerd wallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before nerd wallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Nerd Wallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Budgeting was always a challenge for me. I struggled to find the best way to keep track of all of my money, not to mention all the time tracking down receipts, cataloging expenses, and trying to figure out what went wrong with my air quote system until Monarch Money. Monarch Money allowed me to easily see what is going on with my finances, helping me get a better handle on my spending, budgets, and more. It's my go-to app every day, more so than my bank, because I can quickly see where I am with my budgets and spending, allowing me to invest more and spend time on the things that I want to do. It's my GPS for money. Monarch is a top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all of your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, set goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com beginners. Unlike other personal finance apps, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch has built-in features to collaborate with your partner, family, or financial advisor. Invite them to your account at no extra cost, and they'll get their own login info and a joint view of all of your finances. Monarch is the most customizable budgeting app. Change the layout of your dashboard, toggle between light and dark mode, create custom budgets and notifications, set up automatic rules for transactions and notifications, and more. In fact, Monarch Money is one of the first to bring you direct Apple Card, Apple Cash, and savings syncing with the latest iOS 17.4 update. Now you can sync your wallet directly for seamless budgeting. 
After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash beginners. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash beginners for your extended 30-day free trial. Those are, yeah, that's, that's, that's cool to see that evolution, you know, of your approach and everything and, and really your mindset and the way you're, 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 you're looking at things. And I think for somebody who's listening and becoming, I think a lot of people come into this podcast as a beginner and then you go through a sort of evolution. And so what's, What's tricky is learning just enough to, to keep your momentum, right? And then as you're learning new things, to not forget the good things that you've already remembered. I was trying to think really hard about how I could say, how I could say this eloquently, but, you know, when I think about my, one of my childhood heroes, Kobe Bryant, and you look at the way that his career progressed throughout the couple decades he was with the Lakers, he just had different parts of his game that were stronger at different times of his career. And it didn't make him a a bad or worse player or, you know, a better or greater player because he had certain strengths in certain of his abilities and talents versus others and the way he approached it and the way he maximized those. And so I think as investors, we can take a somewhat similar kind of mindset. And so really the reason why I try to bring that up is because, again, coming from somebody who's a beginner and then trying to find your own path through that and evolve and increase your mindset and get momentum and start learning things and start piecing things together and start building that puzzle that's in your brain until things start clicking and then you know because it's it's such a huge expansive world that investing is and it's so easy to get swept up in it and I am guilty of it all the time you know I I I just love digging into the specifics and so it's it's very hard to pull back from that but I think it's very important for somebody who's trying to to come up and and kind of craft their own approach. And so I think I've definitely seen areas where I have more of a focus than others. I constantly try to and I guess the the longer I've been doing this, the more I've been doing this, which is scary because it's time consuming and mentally exhausting at times, but really trying to challenge why I think a certain thing and just challenge it and challenge it and challenge it. And, you know, as you really uh, put that thing through the fire, then you either really master and understand it, or you realize it's, it wasn't a great idea and you move on. And so I think there's a lot of that as it goes to investing in general. Uh, I guess, particularly if you get down to the nitty gritty of, of trying to pick your own stocks, there's been a lot of adjustments for sure. It's something I'm constantly evaluating and it's just something you're constantly building on. Hey you, what's the best way to get started in the market? Download Andrew's free ebook at stockmarketpdf.com. You won't regret it. I totally agree. And I think as 
you go along that is going to be natural that as as you learn more you start to evolve more and you start to pick up on things that you may not have noticed before and to me a great analogy i think a, a basketball would be a great analogy when you first start playing the game it is super fast and everything goes by you super quick and it's super hard it's really hard to catch up and feel like you're understanding the flow of the game and everything that's going on but the more experience you get and the longer you play the more the game quote-unquote slows down for you and you start to see things that you may not have seen before and you start to be able to anticipate things that you were not able to anticipate before and that all comes with more knowledge and it all comes with more experience and as you go along you will start to notice things and pick up on things that you did not see before and that will cause you to start changing your outlook and your mindset and the frame of how you do things. It doesn't mean that your overall values change. That's not, I don't think what either Andrew and I are talking about, but you start to, you start to see things that you didn't see before. And when I think about changing or how your approach is, I look at Warren Buffett and his approach has changed multiple times throughout the time of his career. And I think that that is probably a normal evolution of how you look at things and it will just naturally adapt. And so I think once you start to understand the basics and have a foundation of how things are, then you'll start to experience things that you want to grow from and challenge like Andrew does and I love that about him, that he challenges things and he, he, he pushes the boundaries of things. And that's how you get better at things is by doing that. If you just do the same thing over and over and over again, yeah, your muscle memory will kick in, but you're not really becoming better. It's when you start to really push on boundaries and tr- try to expand on things that you don't know as well as you do, that's when you start to get better. And that's when things will start to change. I love that. Uh, basketball example that's so perfect thanks thanks i thought of it while you were talking about kobe (laughs) (laughs) naturally yeah Yeah, you inspired me so (laughs) all right so on to david's next question uh over the past seven months have you had to go back and reevaluate anything with the greater volatility uncertainty etc so i don't want to put words in vitaly's mouth because we're supposed to possibly talk to him soon right Yep. Um, he had he had a really great piece about this, and so if he does end up on our podcast, we can talk about it then. But um, in a nutshell, yeah, he, the last seven months is a perfect opportunity to to reset your assumptions because it's it is a, a different ball game right now. Yep, exactly. All right, uh, moving on to the next question. Uh, with the current market environment, do you check company financials more often, quarterly versus yearly, to see how a company is handling any disruptions from lockdown, supply distribution, and et cetera? Yes, 100%. So in the past and on previous episodes, I talked about how my portfolio was very low maintenance. And it was just, you know, once a year when the annual reports came out, that's when I was checking up on these companies. Now things are a lot more fluid. And so I have taken, it is quite time consuming, but, you know, I have taken that time to, to really check up and make sure 
have a good sense of what the post COVID picture is makes you realize, you know, <laughs> uh, why people pay money for investment advice because it, it can at times like this, especially it, it's um, quite important. And so not only am I checking quarterly, but I'm also looking for any news releases that come out from the company. So seeking Alpha is a great place to subscribe to get email alerts on the companies you hold. And then as soon as they release, they release like an 8K or some other press release, you can be first on it to read and digest and see what's going on. I echo all those comments as well. I I definitely am checking much more than I used to. And I'm reading quarterlies and yearlies and the news, AKs. Yeah, anything I can digest about the companies that I'm either invested in or following, I am spending much more time analyzing that. And it, a lot of it has to do with the fact that everything is so fluid right now with everything that we all know is going on. So yeah, it's, it's definitely affecting that aspect of it. All right. Uh, next question. How do you view sectors most impacted from lockdown slash disruption caused by the pandemic? Uh, I'll keep this one short and sweet. I'm really going to be unloading it and unpacking it in this e-letter issue that's coming out um, tomorrow night. But basically three big sectors that I think are going to benefit. So basically, you know, coronavirus has created what I would like to dub a Corona economy and it's completely changing the future of certain sectors and completely leaving in the dust, the future of others. So I think some obvious ones would be cloud construction and commodities with commodities being a particular subset of commodities, which we don't have time to get into today. But, you know, obviously people are going to the cloud. Um, there's a lot of different reasons, which I've talked about constantly uh, in the past e-letter issues about why construction is looking pretty good and commodities are kind of a beast on its own. And then on the flip side, you just have these sectors that are just in really, really bad shape and it's tough to see them recovering for quite a while. And that's going to hurt investors and, and really slow compounding. And so those really, really bad sectors. I look at retail, I look at restaurants and refuelers like gas stations, particularly gas stations and restaurants. They have demand that I don't know how you can make that up. It just seems to be gone. I would definitely agree with that. I am looking at the sectors along the same lines that Andrew is. Uh, I'm definitely looking at tech much more than I did in particular for me, it's more along the lines of semiconductors and 5g internet of things, those kinds of things, because I think that is going to be something that's going to be much more prevalent in our economy in the next five to 10 years. On the flip side of that, I think something that I have been paying a lot of attention to because I have a lot of experience in it is the restaurant business. And, uh, as Andrew was saying, that a lot of that demand is gone. I was reading something today on Yelp, which for those of you not familiar with that, is a website that tracks restaurant reviews, I guess is the best way of putting it. And they were commenting on the fact that there were 23,000 restaurants that have closed permanently in the United States since March that will not be opening. 
that is roughly around 52% of the sector of restaurants that are on that website. Now, Wow. One one thing about that restaurant is not every single restaurant is on that website, but the vast majority of them are. So there may be some mom and pop shops, for example, in some small towns that may not be listed on there. But the vast majority of restaurants that any of us go to are going to be on there, including the big chains, the not so big chains and the small chains, all that stuff. They're all on there. And of all those restaurants, over 52% of them have closed permanently. So that is a staggering number. And that does not include bars. So that is, we're just talking about restaurants, people, places that people go eat food. The bar industry will probably be just as, hammered as the restaurant business so the other thing hope they be hammered <laughs> yeah they probably will be yeah they probably will be because of all this but another aspect to take into into to think i guess another couple steps past just the restaurants so when you think about the fact that twenty three thousand restaurants are not going to reopen their doors Again, if and when they can, depending on where you are in that part of the country and how that's being impacted by what's going on now versus what went on in the past. Every restaurant, even if you just take, uh, I think it was, if you averaged, I was guesstimating that that was probably going to be roughly about a million people that have now permanently lost their jobs that have to go find something else to do. And when you have 52% of other restaurants, 48% of the restaurants still open, that's a, that's a huge demand for those employees. In other words, a lot of those people are going to have a hard time finding another job because a lot of people that work in the restaurant business are either transient type of jobs. In other words, they're going from what this type of job to another job, or they're starting out like this is one of their first jobs and then they go on to some other career, or there are people that maybe are lacking education. They haven't had the opportunity or they're immigrants, uh, people that have come here from another country and that are trying to learn the language and trying to get a job so they can live here. Uh, a lot of those people are going to struggle to find other other jobs because there's not a lot of the restaurant business employs a lot of those kinds of people. And and it gives them opportunities to earn a living and 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 do the things that they want to do. And those opportunities are now going to be much, much harder for those people to get. So that is one I guess, economic impact of what's going on that's not not talked a lot about and I think is is going to have a huge impact on a lot of different things. So a lot of different things that I'm mentioning, now we're talking about food processors. Now we're talking about people that make alcohol. Those impacts are going to be, it's going to be rippled back into those industries because, for example, most beer and alcohol is consumed in restaurants and bars. It's not consumed at home. As much as Andrew tries to drink uh, all that tequila, <laughs> he can't keep That's the right. tequila industry open by himself. <laughs> but uh, so that being said, the people that are making all those products and selling those products and out on the streets trying to push all those things, those people are going to have a harder time too because now they have fewer places to go to sell their products. The companies that make them are going to have fewer places to sell them. Uh, so it impacts the liquor stores. It impacts the people that make the process meats. So 
the companies that process chicken, for example, the majority of the chicken that they process is for restaurants. It's not for grocery stores. It's for restaurants. And so now those places that are not cooking those gazillion chicken breasts to serve on sandwiches and salads and chicken tenders and all those things, those places are all gone. So where's that chicken going to get sold? So the, uh, I guess the point I'm trying to make without being Mr. Doom and Gloom is that Sometimes we have to look beyond just the sector that's being impacted. We have to look back at the ripple effect of how that's going to impact other industries uh, farther down the food chain, so to speak. And so those are the kinds of things that I think about, not just about, you know, looking at Darden Industries and going, yeah, this is a great investment or not. But how is that impacting the other industries around Darden Industries and what kinds of opportunities there may be? Because of some of those things happening, there's a lot of very inventive, creative people out there. Uh, I was reading about a restaurant recently that was struggling to sell their food. And so they went to the city and got a license to sell their produce on the sidewalks as like a, a farmer's market kind of thing. And they were able to make extra money by doing that. And that was brilliant because people love the produce at restaurants and it's generally very fresh, has to be fresh. And it's a, it's a brilliant idea. So uh, there are a lot of great smart up people out there doing the best they can. But I guess my point is, is that yes, there are industries that are impacted uh, not just for the, the, the good, but also for the bad. And you have to kind of take all that into consideration. Those are very wise words. The only thing I will add is because I know there are plenty of Eli subscribers who are probably listening and they know that we own a food processor, you know, a chicken company. We'll just also keep in mind that certain stocks could be exceptions to the rule, possibly. So as an example, the one that's still in my portfolio because of the CARES Act, they were able to realize a really big tax reduction, basically, not having to pay as much in interest, which saves them a lot of cash from losses back in like 2017. So, you know, there are like provisions in that CARES Act that allowed a company to do that and to also continue to do that moving forward. So it's an example of where. A company's the big picture does tell a big story, but there could also be different ramifications depending on the company. And so, you know, if you are a subscriber and you're wondered about, wondering about that food processor, that's the situation there. There's also hope. You know, we'll see what happens with the NFL and chicken wings being a big thing during that time period. We'll kind of see how that works. Also, watching like poultry prices, which dropped pretty pretty rapidly and now have come come up quite a bit and could provide some some recovery in that third and fourth quarter so yeah i guess definitely a lot to consider i i really like that mindset and i think that's the huge takeaway from that question and 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 our answers here when it comes to these sectors is to really try to think of that ramification through the ripples and and how that interacts with the different stocks in your portfolio and not just one or two that that you might be thinking of. Yep. I totally agree with that. It's a very good point. All right. Let's move on to the next question. Uh, do you put more slash less weight in debt slash equity due to the widespread 
due to the widespread disruption across the economy as a whole. So the focus is a lot different right now when it comes to like suddenly now everybody needs to be aware of like how how much how much a company owes in a, in a short amount of time because liquidity is like the huge thing right now, and so if if you listen to conference calls, if you um, listen to CFOs talk about their company, they're talking about you know bank revolvers and they're talking about you know we were able to secure this bond issuance. They're talking about we have this much in cash and cash equivalents. So real big accounting terms, but basically the idea is do they have enough cash? And so that right now takes the highest precedence over anything else. Um, and like with the sector discussion, it's really, you can sort of take it on a, a case by case basis. And Dave, I like what you said earlier in the episode where you said you're not looking at it. You're not looking at it the same as you did maybe before, because uh, when it comes to debt and liabilities, there's a lot of, minute details about it that could make some debt not equal to others and so that's i guess you're you're putting more weight but it's like a different weight in some of the debt to equity ratios because of what's going on right now yep i would agree with that i think that's the the right way to look at it is take it on a i that's what i'm doing i'm taking it on a case by case basis so i look at each company individually and try to assess how the debt to equity or any sort of debt that they have, how that's going to impact the company, not only now, but in the next six months, as well as the next five years, and try to project how the company is going to do in that time period and handle those debt levels. Uh, Andrew was talking about this great point where he was talking a little while ago about looking at a company's financials and and trying to determine if they had enough cash on hand to handle any debt that they had without taking any revenue in. And I think that's a great exercise to do to get a good idea of how much debt the company really does have and how much is that really going to impact the current cash flows that the company has, because that's really where the value lies is by is from those cash flows. And if the debt is substantially diminishing those, then that could be a problem over a long term. And that's why a lot of these companies have been doing some of these things that Andrew was mentioning, like doing bond issuances and taking down debt from bank revolvers, which are basically lines of credit, which is, for those of you not familiar with that, that's in essence a, a credit card without the actual plastic. It's just money that you can borrow that the bank has given you and you pay it back at a lower interest rate than a loan, for example. And those are just ways that companies use to have liquidity. And most of these companies have always had those there. They just were not talked about as much as they are now because of what Andrew was mentioning, the liquidity issues that companies may or may not be going into. And and in a situation like we are in now, I think it's much more prudent to go on a case-by-case basis as opposed to just waving a wand over the whole market or sector and saying, this, this sector has too much debt and I'm just going to, eh, where 
it's, I think, more appropriate to look at each company that you own and go, does Disney have enough or do they, are they, they okay? I think that's probably the better way to go about looking at that kind of thing. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I mean, I think it is a lot to kind of process and go through. And if this is your first episode you've listened to, I'm sorry. <laughs> Just blame Corona. Um, but, you know, uh, I think take little bits and pieces as you can from it. And these are just fantastic questions and things that have been on both of our minds uh, as we've tried to navigate through all of the fallout. And I'm sure we'll be navigating it through it for months and months and years to come. Um, but it's, it's, it's a good eye opening experience, I think, for everybody to, to really start to see that something, the big takeaway I think is like, this is, this is why diversification is so important because the world can change in an instant. And then all of a sudden the whole game is like different with different rules. So be diversified. Remember always, like we try to say, invest with a margin of safety, emphasis on the safety dollar cost average. So you're, you have a habit to put money in the market every single month. And so you're just being consistent. You're not trying to time the market and then be diversified so that you are covering your bases and lowering your risk. That's very well said. And I don't think I can, I can add anything more to that. That is the perfect way to handle this. And I, I think what Andrew was saying about things changing in an instant, I don't think anything could be more illustrative of that than what's going on in our country, uh, in the United States, for example, in since March is just, there is, None of us have ever seen anything like this, and I don't think we ever will, hopefully, again. So I think that's a perfect point. So I, I, I echo everything Andrew was saying. That was perfect. All right, folks. Well, that is going to wrap up our discussion for this evening. I wanted to thank David for taking the time to write us that great question. Uh, that was a that was an awesome one. He had a lot of great questions in there. There was a lot of stuff in there for us to unpack tonight. So thank you, David, for taking the time to send that to us. And if you guys have any other great questions or any questions at all, please do not hesitate to send them to us. We will get to them as we can. And if we can read them on the air, we definitely will. So without any further ado, I'm going to go ahead and sign us off. You guys go out there, invest with a margin of safety, emphasis on safety, Have a great week, and we'll talk to you all next week. We hope you enjoyed this content. Seven Steps to Understanding the Stock Market shows you precisely how to break down the numbers in an engaging and readable way with real-life examples. Get access today at stockmarketpdf.com. Until next time, have a prosperous day. The information contained is for general information and educational purposes only. It is not intended for a substitute for legal, commercial, and or financial advice from a licensed professional. Review our full disclaimer at einvestingforbeginners.com. This summer, dive into the many cools of San Antonio. Because as soon as the temperature rises, so does the fun, the flavors, the excitement, and the many cool things that make our city the perfect summer getaway destination. Come keep cool with amazing pools at the best hotels, refreshing adventures both indoor and outdoor, inspiring history and culture, culinary wonders, and the hottest nights of your life at the coolest spots in Texas. To plan the coolest summer vacation, dive in to visitsanantonio.com slash summer.